Saran, thank you for that performance. Pleasure. That was. Uh, we've we've just been performing this this uh, sort of version of of uh, some material that's just been written. Um, none of it's released yet, so it's a it's a it's a nice time to air some dirty laundry. And uh, yeah, when Tom uh, invited me to to perform, it was a it was a great window of opportunity. So I'm home for a couple of days and. I thought I'd bring the, the happiness machine with me and, uh, and fire it up in St. Paul's. There's been a few raves in here, so I thought it should be fine. Um, so yeah, that, that song's called Eagles, obviously. Um, and yeah, just a brief synopsis of the song. Um, it was based on an experience that I had jumping out of a plane um, in Monato, doing some skydiving. And as I fell through the clouds, and we pulled the chute, we, including the guy that was attached to me on the back, um, we pulled the chute and we were floating through, through space and uh, this eagle appeared out of nowhere and this gentleman had done over 2,000 jumps and was reminding me that he'd never seen anything quite like it. So I saw this experience as an omen and then years later it materialises itself in a song. Um, it would have been 15 years later, so... I thought I'd just give you a little background on that that uh, that song, in particular, because later we'll talk about expanding themes and how, um, in music and art in general, themes are often just limited to one expression. And uh, there's things that we work on that are looking to expand that um, in totality. But I'll let you take charge. So that's Eagles and the Happiness Machine. Cheers. So you've had a, a really interesting career. I mean, I think we would call you still at this stage an underground artist. A lot of people are just starting to find out about you. Yeah, I like saying underground. Yeah. It's, it's fun. Um, so the interesting thing for me is to just to take a step back and look at some of your origins, just mm -hmm. to understand where that comes from. Because in your career, you've collaborated with some of the biggest artists in the world. You've co-written a... a a uh, track on uh, a num US uh, number one album with one of the biggest artists in the world in Usher. Mm -hmm. um, you've played uh, with Empire of the Sun to, you know, festival audiences around the world of, you know, 50,000 people mm -hmm. and toured for years with that group. Uh, collaborated with all kinds of, um, you know, you've licensed a whole lot of music to film and television. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is interesting to me just to start the conversation off, is just to get a bit of a sense of who you are and where you've come from. You've, your father's an Indian migrant to Australia. Yeah, so Dad came out here in, in the 70s. So he, he landed here in 1970 when Adelaide wasn't overtly Asian at all. It was predominantly Greeks and Italians, as we all know, um, a brief history of the, of the state and the, and the city. And so Dad was one of the first turban-wearing Sikhs, and it's hilarious to even think this now, but I've, you know, born in 81, so I've seen the, the, the change, and when my dad immigrated out here, there was literally 30 Sikh people in Adelaide, and it's hard to comprehend that now when you get into an Uber or you get into a taxi that everyone is Punjabi, and so we were brought up going to the Gurdwara, which was his, his temple in Punjabi, which was in Hampstead Gardens at the time, the only temple in Adelaide, which was a, uh, a transportable classroom that the Sikh community had purchased. 
and you know decked out as as a temple and it was really my first experience seeing music and food and culture sort of starting to come together and i remember um vividly witnessing Daya Singh, who's a famous uh, tabla player, playing tabla and, and vajra, uh, which is like an Indian organ, and thinking, you know, my Punjabi was terrible, so I couldn't understand the songs, but I could connect with the music on a, on, on a level that was inspiring enough for me to want to continue to, to seek, <laughs> excuse the pardon, seek out, seek out some, some musical uh, journey in, in my life. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the, the migration tale. And at that stage, it's probably relevant to talk about. I had no idea where this musical bug came from. And I've, it took me some time to flash forward another 20 years for me to dig into our family cultural history. I said to Dad, where is this, you know, I'm obsessed with music. I live music. I have had for my entire life. And he said, oh, to be honest, my, my sister, who is, uh, was a lot older than he was, um, was the singing teacher at the local temple in Malaysia. And then we dug deeper and we had a lot of traditional Indian musicians on my dad's side of the family. Um, so it was nice to know that somehow that was echoing through our family. Um, and that tale of, of migration, um, you know, we, I certainly wouldn't be here if it wasn't for um, for migration. And um, I'm definitely um, grateful for, for that exposure at such an early age. And, um, yeah, it's, it's nothing but a good thing. Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it's the, I, I call it the miracle of migration. And there's so many people, I'm sure, in this room who are either children of migrants or migrants mm. themselves. Um, and uh, so to capture that story and see how it interconnects with other people who have yeah. migrant backgrounds and where those pathways lead is, is what makes Australia such an interesting place. Yeah, and, and when you start to consider diversity in a, on a philosophical level as well, you know, the, the, the pathway to innovation and all these, th these key flash words that, that get thrown around is, is really the pathways is through diversity and that's how you're living or what you're eating or what you're listening to or how, what, how you're opening your mind. Um, but we can, we can branch out. So this, this photo is actually of me playing organ at my grandmother's house in Malaysia. It's the only baby, they, they asked me to provide a baby photo. It's the only one I could find. But it actually looks like my, my, my I've got two boys, they both look exactly like that now anyway. But um, yeah, so that's me pretending to play organ, which is what I do now anyway. I just stand there and pretend like I can play the organ. I'm not really. Well, actually, it's interesting you say you play organ, but uh, I, this is kind of my first experience of Saran's music. Uh, I'm a lawyer. I was helping some guys who ran a pub here in Adelaide to um, do some business transaction, and, and one of the... the kind of main guy said to me, uh, oh, you have to get this one of our shareholders to sign up. His name's Sid, which turns out is short for Sidhu, which is Saran's uh, surname. And so I figured I was going to kind of meet this accountant-looking guy coming into my office to sign some paperwork. A Punjabi guy, right? A Punjabi <laughs> accountant with a <the laughs> turban. Um, and Saran comes in looking like he's just stepped off the stage of a concert at Wembley into my Flinders Street offices just to sign a, a share transfer. Um, and 
by the end of that first meeting, he had invited me to catch up with him so we could write some songs together. <laughs> um, so, I, I, um, one morning, it was at like seven in the morning, and I just had a fit of inspiration, and uh, I sang a kind of a, a couple of lines into my iPhone. Uh, being a lawyer, the, uh, the title of the song was Guilty. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the lines were, if loving you is a crime, I plead guilty. So I had this little tune, I sang it into my iPhone and I texted it, texted the little soundbite to him or emailed it to him and, uh, and went off to work. Uh, kind of somewhere... He didn't realise this is how he was getting paid for the transaction. <laughs> <laughs> the privilege of songwriting <laughs> with Saran. Well, it was a privilege, I'll tell you what, because I, I then get a text message from him, uh, you know, several hours later... Uh, come over to my place in Kent Town, here's the address. So I went over there and he said, listen to this. And there was this fully formed track which had drums, bass, keyboards, guitar, uh, a lead vocal, harmony, uh, about five uh, part harmonies in the, in the chorus. And, uh, and I turned to him and I said, and it was the song that I had sung into the iPhone and sent to him. And I said, who played drums on this? And he said, I did. And I said, who played guitar on this? He said, I did. I said, who played bass on this? He said, I did. Who played the keyboards on it? I did. Who are these singers? They're me. So he's not just an organist, he's one of these people who is a multi-instrumentalist with a beautiful voice and has an extraordinary um, sense of harmony. And, um, and that was my introduction to him. But then... There was more to it than that because within a short few months, he called me and said, hey, listen, you know that song that we came up with? Uh, we then finished the song together and, and then um, he said, you know that song we came up with? Um, NBC Universal in the US want to license it for a new television program uh, and uh, would that be okay with you? <laughs> Again, that was payment for his services. <laughs> Um, and so it ended up being licensed to some science fiction uh, television series uh, in some scenes. That's a good place to start because it shows the expansion of themes and, and, and going back to what I was saying earlier about you know taking an idea and this is even more literal because it's a lawyer writing a song called Guilty. And that connotation and that, that legitimacy of theme really connects anyone listening to that song even more so. A lot of people don't think I'm joking when I performed that song at, you know, Womad a couple of years ago or in, in various places in the world and I say, oh, this is one my lawyer wrote and I get a few chuckles but no one actually realises that, that it's a true story. <laughs> and I just love that, that you know, there's, there's, no, there's no hiding from the truth, you know, when you, when you set that course of legitimacy, it's like, <laughs> there's no avoiding it. So that, I mean, that was, that was a great uh, experience um, and very different times. But that ability to uh, be able to be a multi-instrumentalist and s sing uh, beautiful vocals, multiple harmonies, um, and then again, there wasn't some recording engineer who was sitting there recording this or a producer. Uh, my memory is you just fed it all into your laptop and you did the whole, you engineered yeah, I mean, and produced the whole thing. The so laptop being the modern equivalent of a tape machine, but which, which I did use. But it's funny, I always thought I was special that I was able to play all these instruments, but the more and more I talk to musicians and the more and more I talk to people that are 
are good at what they do. They actually, a lot of people do that. A lot of musicians play lots of instruments, but they get struck with fear that if they were to pick up an instrument that they're not familiar with or they don't spend that much time with and they sound shit, then they're, they're likely to not want to pick it up again. And um, I guess something in, in my genetic makeup or my, my brain wiring says, you know what, even if it sounds crap, it's not going to sound crap for long. And then all of a sudden it starts working. And um, I think a lot of it's belief. I think as a, you know, a will, willing myself to, to, to learn how to play these things um, and fail and, and, and come to terms with that failure as well. Um, and that transcends you know, everything outside of music as well. I think we'd, a lot of us are trapped by, um, by that fear to, to fail. Um, and so while I enjoy the, the multi-instrumentalist title, I also think, well, shit, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great musicians out there and all of them that we listen to in every genre that are brilliant on lots of different instruments. And I often enjoy working with people and putting them on instruments that they don't usually play. You know, bass players make great drummers. Drummers make great bass players. Guitarists make often great vocalists. They're, they're fragile and there's a fragility in a guitarist that never gets an opportunity to sing, but you give them an opportunity to sing and all of a sudden there's this raw emotion that comes out of them. Um, so yeah, I, I think um, having an idea of, of the bigger picture um, is more important than you know, being a multi-instrumentalist, I think, spending a little bit more time on, on the idea um, and extracting the idea and being a storyteller or understanding the narrative is even more important than oh, did I play this note right or is my groove just, you know, the best thing ever? Well, so just on that, about sort of fear of failure or maybe being prepared to overcome that fear of failure, but also the bigger picture. Uh, Should we change the slide just while you're doing that? Yeah, just, that'd be great. Just for a version with me with the stronger beard. So that takes like me to em Empire of the Sun. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in the, in the same way that you kind of recorded that track that you did with me, uh, there was an interesting similar journey for you except with a, um, a, a substantial artist in Usher uh, that ended up seeing you co-write uh, on a US number one album uh, with Usher, one of the biggest artists in the world. Um, and kind of the story of that, I'd like to hear a bit about that, because the story about that is, uh, you know, that didn't just happen overnight. That yeah. happened through years of uh, taking your chances when, when they presented themselves. Yeah, and I no, imagine a lot no of failure along the way. But tell us a little bit about, you know, how that track came together and how you ended up in that situation with Usher that led to you recording that record with him. Well, it was a sliding doors moment, which often, I think, as I've gotten older, I've realised they're happening all the time these pivotal moments and I think being aware of those you realize that are happening constantly but this in particular was when I left the said business that I met Adrian with which was uh, which was a hotel that I was a partner in the day I resigned I got a phone call that night from Luke Steele who was putting this project together this Empire of the Sun Circus. So that's Luke that's on Luke guitar, on the left. He's yeah, the yeah. lead singer of yeah, Empire of the Sun. Dressed, dressed up like um, David Bowie meets um, some sort of pharaoh with his gold guitar there. But we, um, 
he said, look, I'm looking for a multi-instrumentalist and I've heard you're the guy. I'm trying to put this project together. We're going to take it on the road. It's going to be the biggest thing in the world. I said, mate, that's great because I don't have a job. So I flew over to Perth. He said, here's the record. This was before it was out, of course, and it was still being mixed and whatnot. Can you learn it and then come over to Perth? I said, yeah, sure. I'll learn all the instruments on every song, so all the music. And so I took, I checked in five pieces at the airport and took a keyboard and a bass and a guitar and then a bunch of percussion and a few pairs of jocks and then we headed off to Perth and, and I literally had, because my music theory is, is very average, so I had these cheat sheets written out for each song, you know, G, D, E, just, they were pretty much just letters and alphabets and trying to fudge my way through these songs but we, we sat through the first rehearsal and decided what I would be playing on stage for this show. Flash forward, we, we did our first national run here in Australia, huge priority, this, was, uh, this band was second to Coldplay on EMI so there's, there's a roster of priority for budgets on major labels and at the time it was Coldplay and then Empire of the Sun. So you've got this global company throwing tens of millions of dollars into a big project. Fun times. I know, especially coming from, you know, working my ass off musically here in Adelaide and looking, hoping for some sort of opportunity, I thought, this is it. This is it. This is definitely it. And at that point in time, it's fair to say that I had a young, young son as well, so that added an extra layer of responsibility into the process of trying to develop this thing but yeah flash forward to a few years later so it took us about three years to end up at that pivotal sliding doors moment with usher where we performed at coachella and um an australian any australian act performing at this particular festival is a big deal it's it's the festival of festivals in north america um a lot of a-list actors drive down from LA and spend time there. So I'm on stage, we're playing our set, which is very glamorous and lots of smoke and mirrors and carry on. And I looked over and it was Danny DeVito. And I thought, and I definitely didn't drink too much. It was Danny DeVito, Paul McCartney, Kings Leon, Usher, a whole bunch of celebrities. And it was the, the first time that I'd really been sort of thrown back with, with celebrity sh in such short distance and I thought, I've just got to get through this show. That's the most important thing. Anyway, Usher came back to the dressing room and we got along like a house on fire and exchanged details. And I said, look, man, let's, you know, let's get dinner sometime. Very casually. I guess the advantage of living in such a small town in Adelaide is if you take small town mentality into a big city and you actually give a shit about the people that you meet and the people you see because half the time we're related, we're all related. You know, there's one or two degrees of separation in Adelaide. I take that same mentality into the heart of the entertainment industry in Los Angeles. I genuinely, I, I want to catch up with these people. You know, I want to go fishing. I want to know more about them. They're not used to that at all. And so with Usher, it was a situation where he was kind of like, Who's this, who's this guy? I had nothing to lose at that point either. You know, I didn't have a, a reputation to uphold or any of that. Um, and the next day I sent him a song. Um, 
So this is a song that you just that, worked up in your the that, same bedroom in Kent Town? Yeah, so same, similar scenario, you know, it took 20 minutes, this demo was, was raw, I hadn't written a second verse, and looking back at it, it was probably audacious, but I said to Usher the next day, I said, oh, I've got this track, I can hear you on the second verse. I didn't even give him the whole song, I said, I can hear you on the second verse, so instantly I'd assumed that we were going to be singing it together. Which, you know, I, I, I learnt more about that as things went on. But he, um, he happened to be in the studio. He played the track, loved it, got straight back to me and invited me out to Atlanta for two weeks to, to write with him. And the premise was he was very interested in Empire of the Sun. And one of the um, conditions was that Luke came with me. And Luke and I had a great working relationship and a, and a personal one. But Luke is a very um, unique individual and... and you know, can't be held accountable for how he behaves in public. So I was, I was very, uh, you know, nervous about that scenario playing out. But I thought, you know, bugger it, I'm going to get out there and do it. I saw it as a very important opportunity, another sliding doors moment. And so off we went to, to Atlanta together, Luke and I. And the very first time I'd really worked um, with an A-list celebrity um, on their terms um, without chance I was invited there you know it wasn't something that was just hap happened to happen um, and it was wild and I realized very quickly when I found myself singing melodies at Usher for him to sing you know we ended up writing 20, 20 odd songs over that two weeks a song a day at least and I've caught myself a few times thinking, you know, I'm singing at Usher, one of the greatest voices, you know, a contemporary Michael Jackson type figure. Um, I thought, shit, you know, is this the right thing to be doing? And then that, that moment that fear crept in, I made sure I kind of just slapped it in the face and said, shush, yeah. But I, to, to be honest, in, in this, to this room, to this day, I stayed up till four o'clock in the morning relearning the keyboard parts to the song that I'd sent him because I'd completely forgotten how to play it and of course my theory wasn't good enough for me just to write down you know G major 7 etc so I drew a keyboard with notes and blocked out hand fingerings and so when it came time in that particular session I, I had these little cheat sheets that I could just pull up and go oh yeah I got this I got this and truth be told a wave of inspiration came over me. I was playing chords I'd never played before. I thought, you know, where's this coming from? But it was, it was a, it was a real sliding doors moment and a nice, you know, in, in the, the fury of being in Empire of the Sun for that long and how crazy it was, um, that was a wonderful moment because my relationship with Usher has become a, a real friendship and um, we went on to, he, my, I, proposed to my my wife in New York and he was hosting the the fireworks ceremony and invited my wife and I to, to spend time with him I've been flown out for his birthdays and whatnot so we've we've maintained a great relationship and that's you know above the amazing door opening experience that that was it was just wild to come across an individual that's you know the real deal and um and and that that only happened because I had the the balls to say, you know, here's A, we should eat some time and exchange details, but then have the courage to say, here's a track, you know, um, 
and that I've, I've come up against that a few times over my career where you'd, you'd really need to have, um, be prepared to lose, you know, and, and, and know what that feels like. And just to take that open door to where you've got to now, mm. uh, it's great to hear that you've recently... I don't know what slide's coming next. Yeah, oh, there's another next? one. <laughs> right, so that's that's you playing at some f big festival overseas. Yeah, with, that, I um, think that's Empire Crossed, which is like sort of the precursor to to Coachella. But yeah, I mean, we we did um, Glastonbury and all the major European festivals, as well as all the major American festivals and the Australian ones. And and so to fast forward now to uh, where that door that opened has got you through sure. the pathway that you've ch you've taken. Yeah. Um, you very recently were signed by Sony yeah. International uh, yeah. to a new re to a record deal. Your first yeah. international record deal. Yeah, uh, you've been signed as a songwriter with um, solo artist before, with, but um, yeah, Sony ATV for yeah, some time. Yeah, it's a publisher. Yeah, but uh, it's I mean it's a great thing that we've got an Adelaide artist who's just been signed internationally by Sony. So congratulations on Cheers. the signing. Thank you. I think my mum knows about it. That's about it. Right. So now, which means no doubt you've got it all ahead of you because you're going to have to impress them and make that work. But tell yeah. us about, so the name of the act... Is Happiness is Wealth. Okay. So, so tell us about that and, and why is it um, different from, some, from things you've done before, but how is it also a culmination of you getting to this point? I guess uh, I was afforded a, a, a window of, of time... Um, my wife and I, shortly after sort of coming off the road for a very long period of time, moved to Goolwa, um down in the Coorong and, and bought a little shack and, and lived down there. And I really had sort of, we went through the Hurricane Sandy together in, in New York and at that point we'd like, we'd purchased memberships to the museums and we were moving to New York. It was It was set in stone. I was already paying rent there. And we went through the hurricane together, which was... For an Adelaide boy, a bit of a, a bit of an ordeal because it was the first time I thought, you know, good God, this is this is serious. You know, it's it's not you're not in you're not in Adelaide anymore. So we thought we'd move as far away from New York City as possible, which is pretty much the Coorong. Um and that's all we could afford at the time as well. Was you know cheap cheap housing and and um, super inspirational down there and quiet. And um, Jesse had just finished, my wife had just finished working on um, Victoria Square and a bunch of architectural stuff in the city. And so we moved down there and um, it, that afforded me this, this great period of time to really consider what it was that I was doing and, and audit my career and, and think, well, you know, what's the, the, the things that I was carrying around with me that were the most challenging were the lack of time that I'd been able to spend with my family whilst pursuing my career. And um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of, not just artists, but professionals and, and a lot of people that work their guts out um, are familiar with that, that double-edged sword of, you know, perhaps achieving your goals and succeeding, but then at the same time not being there for, your, for people's birthdays or people would stop calling you because you're too busy working. And that's what obsession and devotion and all these things bring, this byproduct. Anyway, so a wonderful 
period of reflection in the Kurong um, brought about a willingness to maybe get back on the horse, so to speak. Um, and at that point, I was really starting to reappreciate what was happening here in Adelaide and South Australia in general, and really started to forge this narrative of of um, this utopian state that that South Australia is. And and I delved deeper into the history of the state and started to realise, ah, oh, these guys that developed these, you know, the Apple Town and the Peach Town and these little towns, the way this, this state was established was not to do dissimilar to this sort of lack of fear and cor courageous approach and pioneering spirit that some artists have, you know, to go it alone and to go set up camp in these different spots. So I was, I was charged with this sense of history and um, thought, well, how can I try and develop a new project with um, initially purely philosophical intention? So it was kind of a Robin Hood moment. I thought, how can I steal money from a major record company and build something that is going to give myself and my family and everyone working on it and everyone around us sustenance? And um, I later realised it was it was a, a you know essentially a permaculture model that I was using and applying to this music process. And so I invited a friend of mine, Omar Vartz, who's originally a South Australian who works in the rag trade and had immigrated to Sydney because that's what it is. It's an immigration from South Australia to it was a migration to to, to Sydney. And said, so come down, stay in Goolwa for a week and get around the campfire and let's, you know, let's come up with something great. And he's, he's a great mind as well. And so our, with our minds together, we, we started talking about um, what is the currency that we're working for, you know, time. And um, we, we arrived at this place of, of you know, happiness and, and time and, and wealth and all that. We started going round and round in circles and realising that there's something in this. And um, then we started to explore the idea of taking themes. Uh, Omar, the brief history of him, he developed brands like Deus Ex Machina, which is a, a motorcycle company that eventually sold for $50 million last year. That's just half the company. He, he, he is the brand developer of this concept where they actually just sold T-shirts but built motorcycles. So they lost money on, on motor building motorcycles but made money on selling t-shirts and he worked for um, G-Star and a bunch of top line apparel companies doing similar things, building their brands up, selling them. He's also a lawyer, he's got a great mind. Anyway, so we started taking his, his knowledge of commerce and his, his willingness to want to actually do good and, and to sort of pull himself out of the, the, the cauldron of, of Sydney, um, profiteering and and try and make something that he we could be a part of that was holistic if you can ever have a holistic music company then that's what this is so the idea is that we take a theme and then expand each theme so traditionally it's a song one song and the first single that we've just released last week was called move and so the the song is an entire collection of clothing 
um, which is, has a film that we've shot, and in the film is the clothing. And so you start to see this galvanized 360 approach to, to the release. The release isn't just a traditional music release, it's an entire season collection. So using the fashion industry's uh, release cycles, which are in seasons, and expanding a theme throughout the, the entire release. So rather than it being a merch afterthought, which is often what happens, a, a song is completed or an album is completed, a band goes on the road and then they say, oh, we need some T-shirts. That's the, pretty much the limit and the, the, the common practice for the music industry is fashion is an afterthought um, and a way of generating an income which is silly because from a commerce perspective, it's the only still tangible product that can be purchased. People don't buy music anymore, but they'll, buy, they'll still buy a T-shirt. And so we expanded this idea and saw the, the, the potential. And um, yeah, through, through no shortage of, of development and, and going round and round and round and round and round and round, we realized that we needed to collaborate with, with excellent people and build a team of people. And so we partnered up with a French photographer um, who shoots for Gucci and all these high-end fashion clients, but then also travels to places like South Africa and the far reaches of the earth just to do photojournalism. That this guy's super interesting. So we threw him into the mix. And we started to film, shoot, and collect the process of us coming up with these ideas as well. And so this content creation plan started to happen. At this point, we had no record deal. And so we're still throwing energy and time and money and resources at something that still wasn't a, a sure thing. And there was trepidation because I thought, hmm, you know, am I really doing this all over again? Um, because the, you go through these things when you're a young musician and you're trying to establish yourself. You think, is it worth all this energy? Is this thing really worth it? Um, but I could really s feel this momentum building and through, again, another sliding doors moment, I was in Hong Kong for a wine tasting, which is a whole other separate story. A client of mine that I work with, I curate music playlists for his wine tasting events. I happened to be there and the head of um, Sony Asia had never tried Nebbiolo, which is my spirit grape. Essentially, if I was re reincarnated as a wine, it would be Nebbiolo. And so I love to take him through this, this tasting and we, we hit it off and I said, look, I've got this great idea. It was an elevator pitch moment that I then proceeded to follow up. You can wow people in minutes with chat and humor and candor, but being able to close a deal and follow it up and, and make it feel like it's real and pursue something without people feeling pestered is I think it takes a little bit of practice. Anyway, I, I got stuck into this guy who ended up championing the, the idea to Sony Australia and, and, and beyond. And yeah, only a matter of months ago, we found ourselves sitting in a boardroom um, discussing global strategy for this, for this entire project and, and coming up with, with great budgets to actually execute 
these dreams and um, all off the back of this, again, lack of, of, of fear of failing. You know, and, and that is a good story. <laughs> I like that story. Now, one word that you used in that uh, uh, last answer was you said something about using a permaculture approach. Sure. Which now takes me to... Is another slide? Um, okay, that's, probably th that's a picture of Omar oh, and myself. It's a little... Little doodle. That's um, Cedric, our photographer. And so this is an example. So th that's a jacket that's um, around two hundred and fifty dollars US. Um, that's beautifully embroidered, and it's a steel taken from the shooting of the film clip, shot in Sydney two weeks ago. Incredible images, and and very convincing and and um, legitimate. You know, shot by a, a professional. This is the collection online, um, which is starting to 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 sell out. Again, the the concept of the single explored, you know, hoodie. You know, an athletic jacket. Just some fun fun imagery there. Some playlists for Spotify. And that brings us to the B. <laughs> yes. So just in your, in your spare time. Uh, you somehow, I really am interested to know how this happened, but... I've cloned myself. I've, I've learned <laughs> the ancient technique of cloning. <laughs> you and your wife, uh, as I understand it, had aspired for quite some time to own your own plot of land yeah. on the Flurio Peninsula uh, while you were living in your place at Goolwa Beach. That's right, yeah. And... The you finally found a place that you fell in love with. Yeah, and it's uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a it's a nine acre. It was a dead almond, horse. Nine it acre it, it, look, farm. it looked like a dead horse. Cause it had just been flogged for seventy years. We tried farm. I studied permaculture. It was the only thing I when I left school, and I still lament it not being able to finish school. School was incredibly difficult for me especially working as a musician going through high school i was already working i was already earning money i was already playing in venues it, to me it seemed a waste of time to go and sit through exams when i could have just focused on playing in bands and playing with people like sia you know like who the irony of sitting here talking now is phenomenal so we would we when I studied permaculture, I realized that like, this is definitely something special this is this is something I can resonate with on my mum's side of the family we have broadacre farming families, so sheep and wheat and cattle we have vignerons in the vale, and on my father's side, we have the lineage of Punjabi Sikh northern India broadacre again um, rice wheat. And then on Jess's side, on my wife's side, they, ha they had dairy and her on her dad's side and on her mum's side, Broadacre out north as well. So both my wife and I had deep-seated roots, pun intended, to want to move to the land, which I think ultimately we all do secretly. We all love it. We fight it from time to time and I slowly convince people that live in the city to get the hell out of here and... We got there, but yeah, so we started off with two wicking beds, which are um, techno 
Australian invention which uses capillary action to draw moisture up from below the, the gardening bed. Very basic system. Reservoir on the bottom, the roots of any plant dive deeper and it only works in 300 mil of soil but the, it encourages stronger plant growth. It uses a sixteenth of the water. It's a great Australian invention. I was about to say South Australian. It's just Australian. So we tried those two beds. We grew enough food for about 60%, 60 to 70% of what we were eating in just the two of us. And this is pre-our pre child now. So we were consuming what we are eating. And then we applied for the um, farmer's scholarship in Wollonga whilst Jess was pregnant. And so she was in hospital helping me fill out the application and we went and applied for this scholarship and our, our pitch was we wanted to grow native Australian food and we did the market research and we saw there was this amazing emu apple, kanzania it's called, it's like a, it grow, it's a low ground cover, 20 times the antioxidants of blueberries, it's, it smells like apple cinnamon, it's covered over the Coorong and probably the best thing, there was one family growing it in South Australia. We learned more about the native food industry in a very short period of time. We saw that there was a monopoly, there was one company in the southeast that had total control over the, the native food industry which was fascinating. But that, we didn't get the grant or the scholarship I should say, but the process galvanised our thinking that we should become custodians of, of a piece of land somewhere. And that set us on this course of, okay, let's sell up and try and find a farm. And so I naturally was thinking, let's try and make some wine because it's the funnest agriculture you can do. Well, so I thought, and then I quickly realised that, you know, the, the funnest agriculture you can do is actually everything. And a traditional farm is farming lots of things all at once. And then you're never bored. Um, the beautiful symphony of, of, of harmony and when things start working together is, is, is a miracle. Um, and so that set us on this, this, this plight to, to find where we are now, which is Paper Shell Farm. So this is the first year witnessing Blossom and our first livestock that we bought for the farm, and so the farm is nine acres, very arid, um, excuse any baby boomers in the room, but run by um, lazy farming baby boomers that sprayed whenever they saw a weed and were going on holidays often, so didn't really care about their property at all. Um, they would bring bees in traditionally just for pollination, which is two weeks of the year for almonds, so the first thing that we did was we bought almond, uh, we bought bees and we bought 13 hives, which roughly is about a million bees. And so that was our first registered piece of um, livestock. And these guys were incredible. This is a photo that Jessica's taken, um, which is a cracking shot really when you think about it. Um, so the pollination began um, literally and this is where I started to take off on an intersection and started to realise that through my musical pursuits, 
and the creation of happiness is wealth and this idea of creating a holistic um, music project was now starting to intertwine into the way we were managing our farm and the, the, the way we were starting to develop the property. And um, all of a sudden there's these huge intersections. Um, and then ultimately we arrive at this sliding doors moment, this pivotal moment where nature becomes the ultimate inspiration. So at any point in any creative process, the sheer contemplation of what's going on in this photo is enough to go on any journey creatively. And um, yeah, I just found myself, I mean, I, I rarely struggle from writer's block or the idea of being stuck to write. Um, but I found myself supercharged more in an active um, capacity, all of a sudden I realized that walks on, you know, walking on the beach twice a day is, yes, it's a luxury and it's things that retired people get to enjoy and whatnot. But I think as a person, we have been gifted this living in a fertile land. I had the capacity to do so much more than what I was doing and that's how I survive in, in, in managing a property of that scale and a career and recognising these intersections and sure, the exhaustion when it comes, you have to look after yourself and you have to look after your body and, and your mind. but. Ultimately, I think we could all do a hell of a lot more. And, and I hear people telling me I often that they're busy. And I chuckle and people wear this busyness as a, a badge of honour. It's a load of bullshit. It's a, this like social um, proclamation that they're um, killing it when really the goal is to be harmonious and not too busy, but busy enough. <laughs> <laughs> like a bee, but, uh, you know, bees hibernate. So, yeah, next slide. What yeah. have we got here? Oh, we've got more Just bees. Just show us a few images there's, of your farm. That's it. So they're the bees that we popped in. Oh, this thing, these are the second friends that we, we brought to the property. So just two sheep, which people, you know, my broadacre relatives laughed at me for this. And I built a uh, portable... Um, cage basically but it's it's called it we call it the tractor so it's a, an enormously long um perfectly made um cage on wheels that the sheep lived in and twice a day we would push them up the row and so we did this for, for eight months every day and so they slowly mowed the entire property um and i was saving for a tractor um so one of the biggest issues we came across when we had the property was compaction and um, that's from the almond industry is notorious for spraying is a big one they spray more than more, more than most and they drag five lots of heavy machinery through every row come up uh, harvest time so they use a shaker to shake the almonds off the tree they use a sweeper to sweep the almonds into a row and then they use a pickup harvester to pick the almonds up and then another bin and another tractor. So there's a lot of compaction. 
And so what you see is a cricket pitch out there. It's, it's ridiculous. And so this was an attempt to try and mow nine acres of mid-row and, and keep sheep. And I've only just been pointed out that they're black and white and now with happiness as well being the yin-yang, being black and white, we recently have renamed these yin and yang, which is great. But they're actually pistachio and piccolo. They're the, they're the names. Anyway, so that was seeing grazing animals and the very sort of the start of me realising that in agriculture there's been no experimentation and to do so you get laughed at and you get pressured into feeling like a nutcase because often people aren't in a position financially, initially and mentally to take risks. And all it takes is one season of change. The land is an incredible thing. In one complete season, we saw a remarkable change in the land, worms returning to the orchard, the trees, we, we've reverted to hand harvesting our 2,000 trees, which hasn't been done for nearly 80 years to 100 years down in Wollonga. We're now the remaining largest almond orchard in Wollonga, which is the birthplace of almonds in the Southern Hemisphere, if you look into the history of, of almond farming. So now we've, we've arrived um, in this kind of repatriation zones. It's like looking after the land um, and the land's look now looking after us. Um, but it took a lot of risk and it took a lot of, um, we, you know, we failed. You know, Jess and I personally harvested these th thousands of trees and we lost through lack of knowledge and through mismanagement, we lost 20% to water damage of nuts. You know, this is very laborious work in the middle of summer. And then we lost another further 20% to birds just through not knowing how to deal with these things. And, um, but we gained, you know, we're, our almonds are regarded as the best in, in SA at the moment, which is a wonderful thing. You know, we're getting, we're the Barolo of, of almonds. We're getting top dollar at the best restaurants. We have four or five clients that buy our entire yield at this stage and we're planning, we're able to plan finally for next harvest and who's going to buy what. We're selling green almonds for the first time this season, which is an exciting thing. But we started to look at the vision of this place and I quickly realised, um, well, there's more sheep. These guys were third, so they came in and then um, that's Teddy there sort of uh, mixing. That shows the sort of what happens when you throw family and animals in together. That's, that's a good one. That happens a lot. And so, yeah, we, we sort of went about the property starting to... Um, convert and observe and, and the first rule of permaculture is this observation one. So watching what the land was doing during rain periods and during um, the seasons, we were literally out there changing things on the fly. Um, and this is a greenhouse that's, that's uh, where we propagate a lot of our plants and it's a perennial row behind it which w didn't exist that's just out in the garden there. So now we're looking at um, we eat 
rough, so these are wicking beds that I was discussing earlier. That's the beginnings of a perennial row, um, and that's where it is right now. That was taken a few days ago. So that gives you an idea. That, that is food. That's all food that wasn't there before. That was literally just planted seed. There's 20 meters. So this gives you an idea of, on a scale of, of disruption, living in a wine region that is a huge monocrop, super important for our state, super important that we look after this thing because in two, three hundred years' time, are we going to be having this conversation or are we going to be talking about how we're going to shift our you know, largest tourism sector away from, from just wine but into agriculture? This is, this, is, this is an example of what can be done with 20 metres and, and some planting and some, a, a small amount of knowledge. And this is knowledge that children can learn. You know, farming is not a heady science. You can take it there if you like, but on a, on a core level, it's as fundamental as the colors, as fundamental as the numbers. It, sh it should be something that, it, well, it is something that's taken up very easily by children and by adults alike. And I love this as, as probably the greatest example of, of, um, of creativity. And, and, and um, yeah, when, now when I look and listen to music projects and think about how creative something might be, I'm looking at these systems and this kind of risk-taking, which is a lot, it's easy to sit on a guitar and flesh out some chords and go, oh, that doesn't work with that. But when you're talking about um, shifting, you know, shifting soil or playing with soil or building soil or, um, you know, understanding that weeds don't really exist, that every plant has got a place. Um, that, that kind of stuff really floats my boat. So that's, that's definitely the future. I don't know where else. Oh, there you go. This leads us to the next one. And we might, um, we might finish on this. The, um, so now you're kind of bringing together your music and the farming that's and right. your entertainment that's right uh into the one concept at Wollonga. that's right uh and that's i think a ticket for a little orchard party that you had there uh yeah so we looked at the models of growing food taking it to market how laborious that idea was um the idea of waking up at five on a saturday morning and going and standing in Wollonga markets didn't really excite me that much and so we thought how can we get maximum margin on a piece of food um, and incorporate all these elements, the music, the food, the actual farm itself? And that's what this is. So we, we teamed up with our closest friend and chef, um, Andre Assini, and then um, we talked to him about, you know, what kind of food we wanted to, to serve. And so we went about planting that food and grew, grew the food right up through its stages, harvested the food, and then invited 100 people to come and eat that food at the farm. I mean, it seems like, so, it seems like such a basic idea, but when you think about it, it it's, for us, it meant that we could share that entire experience, all everything that we've done, 
everything we're doing, all in that one sitting, all in that one experience. Um, and so that was a retreat and is our, a, a model for us and is our, um, uh, yeah, our key component for, for why we're doing what we're doing. It's educational, it's exploration, it's, um, yeah, it's a wonderful time to be alive, Adrian. And on that note, <laughs> I, I, there's one question I've been asking myself and asking other people lately. Um, and the question is, I'm not actually going to ask you this question now because I think, <laughs> I think you've just answered the question. Why does South Australia exist? And for me, you've just given me one possible answer to that question. So um, thank you for inspiring us with uh, your story tonight. It's been a real pleasure to interview you. Pleasure. And I hope it's been a pleasure for you to, uh, to listen to Saran tell his story. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Tom. <clears throat> Thank you, Saran. That's so many narratives going on at the same time. So living local, traveling where on the weekend? Uh, San Francisco. Well, yeah, finishing in Sydney and then San Fran and New York, Miami, And then LA. back and back, then back and so forth. So based in Adelaide, traveling all over the world. Yeah. Growing local. Taking almonds with me. Smuggling almonds, if you will. So, do, <laughs> does anybody have any questions for Strand? Such a great story of connecting to the world, thinking locally, act, uh, acting locally, thinking globally, etc. What yeah. a great narrative of this weaving together art and nature and being able to walk on the beach and the quality of life. And, yeah. You know, so many things. Of, there's that book, The Four-Hour Work Week. You know, he's kind of integrating that into the context of, of a living here but being globally connected and connecting all of these different types of um, art and work mm. uh, methods. Does anybody have any questions? No? Yes? Yes. Thanks. That was really awesome. Really inspiring. Thanks. Um, you've spoken against, well, kind of against busyness, but then you sound incredibly busy. Um, do you get any rest? What's your day kind of look like where you, when you're at home? So I gave up television um, probably in my early 20s and it was a requirement when my, as a band we were all living together and we threw the television out and set the, the musical instruments up. I think getting rid of um, unnecessary distractions is definitely key to it. But yeah, with that capacity, I, f I find that you can actually do two things at once and sometimes three things at once and it's, it sounds complicated but um, it's not. I, in order for me to maintain this trajectory and this, this um, quality of life, I find being present with my family is super important so that's a way of grounding myself but then the reality is, is that it's literally going out into the yard and you d even if you don't have a yard but t just taking some time to put soil in your hands is has the same profound effect on me personally than looking at the stars and it, do it doesn't take much time it's, it's I'd rather be doing that I'm guilty of flicking through Instagram just as much as everyone else is but I'm also grabbing fistfuls of dirt and thinking about what I'm doing and you know, doing things like sneaking a rock onto a plane and 
sitting there and just like playing with the rock. It, it sounds creepy and weird, but th these these things keep me um, present. And, you know, I don't subscribe to a particular religion, but I, I certainly subscribe to uh, nature and, and just feel this immense um, inspiration from it. Yeah. Survival. <laughs> Any other questions? Questions? Um, you talked a little bit about your upbringing, and I come from Indian heritage as well. I'm an immigrant in Australia. Awesome. Very lucky to be here. Very good. Very great to hear your story as well. Wonderful. I just wanted to um, know a little bit about your upbringing with yes. your parents, because we're having Indian parents. Absolutely. If you're not an engineer or an accountant or a lawyer, basically, <laughs> it's, a, it's <laughs> a tough world. This is true. Yeah. So I was the letter C in Christmas in uh, reception, so like, your first... Uh, um, schooling, and I was the letter C in Christmas. It was a Italian Christmas carol, and I remember um, having to learn the Christmas carol and sing this Christmas carol. And my mum came in the night beforehand and told me off because I was singing in my bed, and she was angry that I was still awake, but then kind of understood that I wanted to practice this. And I, you know, I was five years old, but that's kind of the start of this this relationship with my parents where I told them super early, super young, and I said, this is what I'm gonna do. You can't get in my way. And if you do, I'm going to go, you know, I'm still gonna do it. And I, I, I really, I planted a flag in the ground. And I think what they, my dad in particular taught me as an immigrant said, well, if you're gonna do it, you better do it. You know, do it hard and fast and, and well. and." That led, you know, they supported me learning five instruments through school. So I, I worked out pretty quickly that I could skip a class every day if I learned five instruments. So I had a different instrument each day. It was terrible for my grades, but excellent for learning how to play lots of instruments. Um, so no, they've been, you know, highly supportive over the years. But I, um, yeah, I certainly can appreciate the the pressure that immigrant families, especially Indian ones, where there's an expectation to be a professional. And I certainly, you know, there's probably no other culture as well that respects, especially in Punjabi culture, that respects the, the you know, the idea of being a musician is, is one of the most sacred that you can be, um, especially if you have a relationship with it like that. Um, no, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a proud uh, Anglo-Indian, that's for sure. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, yep. It's nice to see a few faces here too, if I don't get a chance to see everyone. It's very nice to see. I've got a beautiful mixture of people I went to primary school with and people I've grown up with. Um, so thank you all for coming. Shoot. Hey, uh, one more. Oh, Hi. Um, I'm a multi-instrumentalist also. And Brilliant. I was wondering on your take between, um, on the, like, balancing either between instruments or between like multiple projects for things yeah. like what's the, what's the balance between focusing headstrong into into something or maybe spreading yourself too thin that's a good that's a good question and i think that's why i sort of mentioned that so many musicians are multi-instrumentalists and it's it's really not that f it's 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 similar to visual artists and painters who are also sculptors. You know, when you go to art school, you learn lots of different mediums. But in answer to your question, I would focus on the song. And so 
the 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 outcome for a musician is to deliver some sort of story, move someone. And if you get bogged down with focusing on instrumentation, whether that be on a particular instrument, a good practice is to go macro and zoom out and think, okay, you know, is this are we are we on the right path here? And and I often am hired as this person that comes into literally a cold room. There'll be a group of songwriters working on a project, they're in the throes of creativity, and I'll be the person that comes in and says, well, you know, where's this thing going? You know, what, what's, what, what are we actually writing here? What's the narrative? What's the theme? Um, and that's a good practice. I think that helps with when you are someone that is building a house and you're using all the tools, sometimes you need to stand across the road and sort of have a look at it and think, shit, you know, balcony could do with a bit of work. Fixer. Fixture, <laughs> yeah, fixer. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do a personal uh, animal testing and uh, test your uh, understanding on breaking from fear, as I normally often wouldn't ask a question, but uh, I put it out that I've been growing uh, the guti or the kwandong. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Many years, yeah. Many years. Which is a, a host, you need, it's like a host That's plant. That's right, semi-parasitic. Yeah. Um, and was traumatized by this thing of Christmas in this country because of the, as a parent, what it does to <laughs> when you haven't got money <laughs> and yeah. the situation. So my faith is we will finish with Christmas in short time and the major festival in this land will become uh, Guti season, which is actually right now, spring. Right. So fertility thing, the red color without having to put plastic item on the thing. Yeah, yeah. So I just like to ask you, what do you think of this idea? I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I think more of those pursuits is what's required. I think there needs to be a, a more of an open forum for people to to try and develop new markets for new for new foods, even old foods. You know, the the irony is that it's the ancient foods, whether it's hemp or kwandong that need to be explored and um you know but with without changing the culture and the way we consume and the way we um see food and the revolution that's happening at the moment is massively in food you know the food is fastly becoming the most thank god the most essential thing to our existence again rather than it just being this you know stupid uptake of nutrients this this, this thing we do by the clock um, you know, even if it's just growing a plant, just the action of growing a plant in your house, your flat, wherever you are, that action in any industry is going to help you more than anything else, I think. I'm, I'm definitely a firm believer in the healing power of, of nature. So it's a thumbs up from me on the Kwandong farm. Let's do it. So first of all, let me thank you, oh, thank please, you. for uh, coming. Let us all... Uh, give thanks to Saran. This is um, just up the street from you. Oh, great. That's um, it's one of my favorite and, uh, varietals as well. And also, uh, thank you, Adrian, for your great uh, facilitation. Really appreciate it. Thanks, um, man. Also, do you have another track you can play us oh. to, to end with, by oh, any chance? I or could uh, probably load. I mean, this thing is... Um, so th <laughs> Not to put 
you've heard enough of me, sure. <laughs> if you wanted to hear any more, it's it's all online. Okay. But yeah, let's 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 chat and have a glass. This okay. th- this other this is this is likely to take off into space if I okay, tell you. Okay, got it. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We're so Pleasure. grateful for for your time. Thanks thank very you. much. Cheers.